episode 24 of the Tarasan's Diplomat, the satirical diplomatic thriller written by former Canadian diplomat Keith Halliday. We hope you've been enjoying the real-world parallels in the newspapers as Brussels politicos debate the Canada-Europe trade agreement and what will happen when Prime Minister Trudeau visits Europe to seal the deal. We may have to get McGregor his own Twitter account so he can chime in. And now, here's Keith from Tarasan's Diplomat Headquarters, podcasting episode 24. The Tarasan's Diplomat, Chapter 28, Eco-Flash Mob I was drinking tea with LeFranc the next morning when my Blackberry suddenly plinked with a pin message from Violet. Go to Canadian Mission. Something big about to happen out front it said. I replied, will do, and grabbed my hat. Lefranc took up a position near a bus stop, but I kept my distance and stood behind some flower planters in a park down the street. There was nothing going on. I was about to send Violet a message when I spotted the giant woman from the East German swim team, who was the Green Alliance's camera operator. She looked at her watch, then climbed up on a garbage can. She produced one of those extendable one-legged camera stabilizers that sports photographers use. On the other side of the mission's front door, I saw a youth in dreadlocks take position with another video camera. A third videographer pulled herself up on top of the bus shelter. They were like snipers taking up position before a coup d'etat. In between them was a white van with no markings, parked in the no-parking zone in front of the mission. Someone walked up beside me. It was E. Graydon Flitch, apparently writing his paper's second story about Canada in the same year. How did you find out about this? he asked. The Canadian government must be more competent than I thought. I wouldn't go that far, I said. It's my day off. I got word about an hour ago, he said. This is going to be fun. Down the street, I saw Cornelia approaching. She had her phone in one hand and a takeout coffee from one of the big American chains in the other. I hoped, for her sake, that Bertrand didn't spot her. He thought there should be a law against takeout coffee and paper cups. Then, my eyes widened. A giant bird appeared from behind a truck and fluttered towards Cornelia. To be precise, a dancer in a bird costume with trailing feathers and a giant beak as a headdress. It reminded me of a modern dance piece as the dancer fluttered and ran forward, swirling in a fascinating bird-like fashion. Cornelia stopped suddenly as the bird swooped in front of her. Her head swiveled in puzzlement as the bird widened its wings and swooped around her a few times before fluttering away to dance around a few other passers-by. A television truck from a Flemish-language news show pulled up. It extended its antenna mast, and a camera crew jumped out as the telejournalist did his tie frantically in the front seat. A van from Euronews was right behind it. Meanwhile, as if from nowhere, I began to hear forest music from unseen speakers. It grew louder. A half-dozen other birds materialized and began to flit and swoop in front of the Canadian mission, like dancers on a stage. Not something you see every day, said Flitch. The Green Alliance obviously has good choreographers, I replied, watching the video camera operators as they captured the scene. Then, suddenly, the lighter forest music was overpowered by dark chords and then violent, atonal screeches. It was like a horror movie soundtrack. The doors of the van in front of the mission burst open. Some young men in hard hats and orange high-visibility vests jumped out. They were carrying toddler swimming pools and 20-liter jerry cans. The dance of the birds became more frantic and their motions more abrupt. The men in the hard hats put three pools in front of the mission and began pouring black liquid into them. 
Ooh, said Flitch, with interest as the crowd gathered. This might get quite good. Cornelia, who'd been watching the street theater complacently, began to look worried. She skittered in her heels with her phone and coffee as fast as she could to the mission, but someone had already locked the front door. She pulled in vain on the door handles. Two of the birds dashed over to the mission's door and theatrically clawed in vain at the glass, along with her. Flitch turned to me. Any comment? Tell me, does this remind you of birds dying in Canadian tar sands lakes? I signaled that my lips were locked tight. Thought so, he said. He pointed at Cornelia, who was still looking through the glass in hope of being led into the building. Is she with the Canadian mission? She probably shouldn't be trying to get into the building at this point. I think I'll interview her. He moved away, like a wolf who has decided which injured caribou to separate from the herd. The music grew louder, and the birds more frantic. It was the finale. One bird fell into an oil pool, then another. They splashed in panic in the oil, sinking lower with each wing flutter. The dancers were remarkably expressive. Finally, the last bird gave an oil death flutter with its wing and slumped lifelessly into the black liquid. There was total silence. The journalists looked around, trying to figure out what was going to happen next. I watched the Green Alliance's cameras. The woman with the East German wrestling physique pointed her camera up the avenue. I watched as a protest parade came around the corner. It was led by Ian Culloden. Behind him was a mob of greenies of varying age and respectability. They held colorful signs in every European language saying things like, Oh no, Canada, or tarnishing the maple leaf. The placards called on Canada to stop killing the planet, the birds, the boreal forest, and the climate. And they called on the European Union to keep Europe safe from Canada's oil villains. Culloden walked up to the dead birds, laid a wreath, and stepped onto a small speaking platform that one of his minions produced. Lefranc appeared beside me. Perfect timing, he said. If Beto and Ravinsky needed any more convincing. I nodded. I bet they're shredding the check to Planned Parenthood right now. The Tar Sands Diplomat. Chapter 29. Burning Lucille. What a creep! exclaimed Violet into her Blackberry. Camille, Lefranc, and I were in her office, listening to her talk to one of her stagiaires on the phone. Lefranc and I were working through the box of Belgian chocolates on her desk. Rubbing her calf with his sweaty foot and she didn't kick him in the shin with her pointy Italian shoes? She's got more self-control than me, said Violet into the handset. She hung up and turned to face us. That was one of my stagiaires, she said. He knows I'm interested in Ian Culloden. He was out with his girlfriend last night for their anniversary and went to one of those little pizzerias near Rompont Schumann. He saw Culloden there with Maxime Mashinsky and what he described as an American blonde woman. His description fits Kennedy perfectly. It's that bob haircut she has. Not popular with Eurotypes this year. Your agents are everywhere, I said. You're worse than Cardinal Richelieu. Better, you mean, she replied. Were there just the three of them, asked Camille? Table for four, but just the three of them. And Mashinsky was rubbing Kennedy's leg, I asked. What was she doing there without Beto or Ravinsky? It wasn't Mashinsky, said Violet. It was Culloden doing the stinky sock rub. Culloden? That's cheeky, I said, as I reached for another chocolate. I bet no one at the department rubs her calf with their warm, damp foot, said Violet, considering the matter. I bet they're all too scared she'll flatten them with some... She paused as she brought her hand down in a sudden karate chop onto my arm to emphasize her point. Taekwondo! Little chocolates flew everywhere. I kneeled down to pick them up as Camille joked about my zombie-like reflexes. Things are really starting to speed up, said Lefranc. Mashinsky must have brought Kennedy along to pitch the bribe to Culloden. Kennedy has to hang out with creepy oil tycoons and a guy who used to blow up weddings before he turned into an eco-freak, said Violet, and let him play footsie under the table. I bet he wants more than just money from Kennedy for the bribe. 
Meanwhile, Beto and Hervinsky conveniently cover their asses so they can blame it all on Kennedy if anything goes wrong. Violet shook her head in disgust. The big question was what to do next. Not much hard evidence had emerged from the dinner about Julian's murder. Lefranc's idea was to burgle Kennedy's apartment, and to do it as soon as possible. He was convinced she was keeping the bank details and other smoking guns in her flat, and wanted to get them before the deal was done and Kennedy disposed of the evidence. We'll blow the lid off the whole thing, exclaimed Lefranc, looking like a 12-year-old boy who had a pocket full of firecrackers. Are we doing this for Julian, asked Camille, or to put thousands of Canadian oil workers out of work? Lefranc's face froze. That's a very good question, all about the national interest. Very French, he said. In the end, we decided to stay on task. Finding Julian's murderer, or at least shaming the authorities into reopening Julian's file with someone professional like the RCMP leading the investigation, instead of Sherlock. Of course, it would be a different matter if the murderer turned out to have been hired by Sleeth and Westcan. Violet's assistant found an adapter, and we copied the tape from the dinner at La Renda Freak onto one of Violet's computers. She made two copies of the disc, one for Violet's safe, and another to hide in Camille's basement. We would keep them in reserve. Now we need to get inside Kennedy's staff quarters, said Lefranc, and maybe also her safe at the mission. Let's start with her staff quarters, said Violet. Follow the money, as they say. Maybe that will work out. Speaking of that, would Kennedy know anything about offshore banking? Isn't her dad a car dealer in Lethbridge, Alberta, or something like that? Wouldn't this all be new to her? Somehow we needed to get Kennedy's flat key, or safe combination. We could use the video of Glostrom to blackmail him, Lefranc suggested. He's about to have a nervous breakdown, I reminded everyone. He's just the kind of person, smart but stupid, who might actually call security division if we tried anything. It's risky. Plus, said Violet, he's an ambassador. He couldn't find the spare key to Kennedy's apartment even if he tried. He'd have to ask Lucille, and she would blab. I thought about this for a second. There were two people in that video. Let's blackmail Lucille! Violet agreed to come with me. She thought that having a woman along would make Lucille feel less threatened when we made the approach. We waited in the landing outside the door to Lucille's staff quarters. Everyone knows people's defenses are low as they approach their front doors. When the Israelis needed to assassinate that rogue Canadian artillery expert who was helping the Iraqis build a supergun aimed at Tel Aviv, they did it in the landing in front of his Brussels apartment door, on Avenue Louise, down the street from the Hotel de l'Imperatrice, if I recalled correctly. We heard the rickety Brussels apartment elevator come our way. Lucille opened the door and stepped out, fumbling in her purse for her key with one hand, with a bag of groceries in the other. It was time to pull the trigger. Lucille, I said, holding up my phone. I'll give you a choice. Either help us out, or I will send this video of you having sex with Ambassador Glostrom to Ottawa. Lucille looked in surprise at the frozen image on my Blackberry, but recovered her composure quickly. She was steadier under fire than most Foreign Service officers. So I had sex with my boss. It happens every Christmas party. If they fired everyone at the department who did that, there wouldn't be anyone left. Except you, of course. Violet glanced at me. You had to admire Lucille's feistiness, but we had to break her. This video, I said, has clear shots of your Brazilian and your hockey tattoo. We're sending it to every secretary and every junior hockey player in the league. I clicked play and held the phone in front of Lucille's face. She was suitably shaken. But then she grabbed my Blackberry and threw it out the window. The three of us leaned over and watched it bounce off the hood of a passing Audi and then get run over by a succession of Mercedes sedans. That solves that problem, remarked Lucille. There's a copy in my safe, said Violet with a smile. And I have a Blackberry photo of the Kleenex you wrote the ambassador's safe combination on. You'll never leave Ottawa again. Calice, cursed Lucille, stomping her foot 
and storming around the foyer in an angry circle with her grocery bag waving wildly, she finally stopped. Okay, what do you want? The combinations to three safes. I named Cornelia, Kennedy, and a random trade commissioner so she wouldn't know we were focused on Kennedy, and the keys to their staff quarters. Impossible, she replied. Make it happen, Lucille, I said, or else. Lucille cursed and walked in another agitated circle near the elevator. Okay, okay, I'll do it. Just get out of my way. My cat is probably starving. She barged past us and let herself into her apartment. I have great confidence in your abilities, and of course, you still think I'm back in Ottawa. Yeah, sure, muttered Lucille, closing the door in my face. Lucille lived up to my expectations. She bamboozled housing in record time. By mid-afternoon the next day, LaFranc and I were inside Kennedy's staff quarters. Her place was nicely decorated, but it had the vacant feel of the flat of a single woman who isn't there much. Piles of mail and dry cleaning littered the standard department-issue dark wood dining table. The fridge was full of wilted lettuce and low-fat yogurt past its best-before date. LaFranc was in the living room, examining Kennedy's bookshelves and liquor cabinet. French Grey Goose vodka and books approved by Oprah Winfrey, he said, shaking his head sadly. Not a trace of Scotch or Graham Greene, he began flipping through her music collection. I'll tell recruiting they screwed up again, I hissed. Now get to work. On the kitchen table were two sets of Audi car keys. Underneath was the owner's manual and bill of sale. It was an expensive car. I saw that she'd ordered it tax-free direct from the factory, built to Canadian specifications. When her posting was over, she could ship it back home to Canada and either wow the locals with its European engineering or sell it and make a profit. I took five minutes to go to the parking garage and search the car before I forgot. Some people like to hide things in their cars. Kennedy wasn't one of them, however. The car was empty, except for a bike rack in the trunk with a couple of long cable bike locks. They were brand new and still in their packaging. I searched the living room. There were a few old Economist magazines on the coffee table, plus that annoying issue of European Nature with Ian Culloden on the cover. Scattered around the room were various photos of Kennedy. There was Kennedy with the minister, Kennedy with the former minister, and Kennedy with various European poobahs. There were also a few action shots of Kennedy crossing the line in a triathlon and of her tossing some hapless Belgian taekwondo woman into the air. The latter had a medal hanging from it, suggesting that Kennedy had won bronze in her category in the Brussels taekwondo competition. She was an impressive woman. I felt guilty. Why did I always think of Julian as the superstar? I went into Kennedy's bedroom. I felt like a dirty old man as I searched her underwear drawer. At the foot of the bed were a yoga mat and a giant round rubber ball, presumably related to some faddish athletic activity with a made-up name. An array of running shoes sat under the window, along with a running watch, tennis racket, and golf clubs. A taekwondo outfit and various brightly colored spandex tops and shorts hung from a drying rack. The mirror at the foot of her bed had a few things taped around the edge, such as theater tickets and photos of Kennedy with friends in various European capitals. Also taped to the mirror was that page from European Nature magazine, with Ian Culloden leaning on his spade over the caption describing him as the thinking woman's bit of organic crumpet. Kennedy hadn't been joking at the dinner at La Renda Frique that she had a photo of Culloden pinned up in her bedroom. I heard LeFranc's voice in the hallway and nearly went through the ceiling in alarm. Who's there? I hissed. Then LeFranc strolled into the room. He put his hand over the mouthpiece of his phone. Don't worry, it's my grandson. I stared at him. He took his hand off the mouthpiece. Okay, I've got McGregor here. Now, McGregor, my grandson's class is reading A Cask of Amontillado by Poe. There's an essay question. Wait a second, and then read it out to us. I whispered to LeFranc in annoyance. Didn't you tell him you were burgling an apartment at the moment and couldn't, couldn't talk? LeFranc ignored me. 
This is the kind of thing that gives the department a bad name, I pointed out. You sound like someone from the Department of Finance, replied Lefranc. We held our heads close together so we could both hear the phone. Back in Ottawa, his grandson read the essay question out loud. Is the narrator Montresor, who seems to believe his actions are justified, right to brick his enemy Fortunato into the wall, or is he the villain of the story? Lefranc looked at me. Pretty good essay question, huh? Not like last month's about cruelty to animals and call of the wild. There was no stopping Lefranc now, I knew. I pondered the question. I would say it depends on what Fortunato did to Montresor. Lefranc's grandson interrupted to ask me to speak more loudly into the phone. I rolled my eyes at Lefranc, who ignored me, and continued. But I don't think the narrator ever tells us what he did. A crime against human decency would be worth a good bricking up. If Fortunato just outmaneuvered Montresor for a plum posting to Venice, then no. And one more thing. Be sure to use the word immure instead of brick up. That'll score extra vocabulary points. Told you he was good at this, said Lefranc to his grandson. They exchanged pleasantries and hung up. I tugged on Lefranc's sleeve as he closed his phone. Can we please get on with our burglary? Calm down, he said. It only took two minutes. I looked under the bed and saw a black roller bag. It looked like she kept it pre-packed with a bathroom bag and the usual necessities. There was no luggage tag on the handle. She usually took it as a carry-on, I assumed. I checked the side pocket and found a pair of old boarding passes. Look at this, I exclaimed to Lefranc. She went to Spain two weeks ago, Malaga, just for the weekend. I rechecked the dates. She left Brussels on Friday night and was back by Sunday afternoon. Isn't Malaga only an hour or two from Gibraltar, he said. Remember the border crossing from Spain? The airport runway is wider than the peninsula, so you have to drive across it to get to the rock. We continued to look around Kennedy's bedroom. Lefranc picked up a large-format paperback book with a garish orange cover from her bedside table and pointed at the cover. It was entitled, The Noob's Guide to Bitcoin and Digital Currencies. What does noob mean? I asked. Lefranc considered this. Nubile? Kennedy is, you know. He picked up a sports bra off the bed and held it up as evidence. Put that down, I said. I don't think they make cryptocurrency guides for nubile young women. Lefranc ignored me and began reading. The Bitcoin concept was invented by Satoshi Nakamoto, a math whiz and hacker so reclusive that we don't even know if he really exists. It's a decentralized digital internet currency, which is run by participants independently of any governments or central banks. While some find the idea outlandish, Bitcoins have established themselves as a multi-billion dollar currency used by a wide range of people around the world. I looked over Lefranc's shoulder. We continued reading the introduction. It's very clearly written, I said. Perfect for the layman. I bet the minister wishes this guy wrote the department's briefing notes, commented Lefranc. He pulled out a piece of paper covered in Kennedy's handwriting. In capital letters, it said, Do not store on computer, and then had a series of phrases like Gmail, LazyDog901, Password, Okohan1867, Fuzz, exclamation mark, and then Private Key, followed by a gibberish of random letters and numbers, capitals and small letters. I observed that the password was quite strong. It was long and had what looked like the first letters of words in a phrase, plus a made-up word like fuzz, spelled P-H, and some numbers. I recalled Violet mentioning private keys, but in the context of pretty good privacy, not bitcoins. Then the paper said, validation chain, and had a list of about 20 random English words. It looks like we need our own copy of the Noob's Guide to Bitcoins, I said, as I copied the details into my notebook. We replaced the paper and book on Kennedy's bedside table. I scrolled through the recently called numbers on Kennedy's phone and compared them against the list of numbers that Violet's assistant had compiled for us. The numbers looked like mostly mission numbers. I wrote them down to check later. Next was Kennedy's office in her spare bedroom, which I checked. 
as LeFranc went downstairs with a handful of keys from the kitchen to find the storage locker. There was a desk by the window and piles of documents along the right wall. The desk was also covered in papers, except for the middle, which was presumably where her laptop sat. I couldn't see any computers in the room, but two laptop power cords were plugged into the wall nearby. One was for the model used by the department, and one was for an Apple. Her Canadian financials were in one pile. I flipped through her bank statement and credit card bill. Her credit line at her bank was at maximum, and she was running a balance on her two cards. Each bill was long, with a lot of charges in London and Paris. There were no hotel charges, suggesting she stayed with friends, but there were lots of travel bills, meals, and purchases. There were several more piles of documents, but these looked work-related. She had old conference programs, worthy think tank reports, and more old economist magazines. Under one pile of photocopied reports, I saw a bright green folder and pulled it out. Jackpot, I said to myself. It was for a bank in Gibraltar I'd never heard of. There was a photocopy of the form for opening a new account for a company called Canterfield Enterprises Limited. This was presumably related to funneling the money to Culloden, as the group had agreed at the dinner at La Reine d'Afrique. I didn't recognize any of the names on the form. These were presumably janitors at the law firm, serving as shell company directors. There were extra fees for a safety deposit box and not forwarding statements, which I supposed was so wives and mistresses and tax inspectors wouldn't find them. There was also a glossy brochure about the bank's gold brokerage and storage service. Kennedy was really immersing herself in the world of offshore banking. I remembered what Julian told me about the book she was studying on petrochemical engineering. Between the oil industry, bitcoins, and offshore banking, Kennedy had learned more in the last six months than most officers did in a decade. I made a note of the account number and the online banking username and password. I heard LeFranc re-enter the apartment. My heart fluttered as I suddenly realized it might not be LeFranc. I poked my head out of the office door and made sure. Found the bike, he said loudly. I wished he would take more precautions. Nothing else except a bunch of empty boxes and empty wine bottles. We should be quieter, more cautious, I said. Then I showed him the Gibraltar bank information. Excellent, he said. Any calendars or agendas? Meetings with Mashinsky? No, I said. She must keep all that on her Blackberry. There's not even a calendar on the fridge. Damn computers, muttered LeFranc. I did see a pad of sticky notes by the phone. It's blank, I replied. LeFranc picked it up and held it to the light. Pen impressions. Got a pencil? We searched the office and kitchen. LeFranc was annoyed. She doesn't even keep pencils in the house, but there's every conceivable kind of cell phone charger on the planet. Would a makeup pencil work? I said from the bathroom. Then I found a real pencil in the golf bag. LeFranc began shading the pen impressions. Letters appeared. Ian. Saturday night. Chateau d'Isère. 4 p.m. That's tomorrow, I observed. Could be useful to know. Could be useful, exclaimed LeFranc in derision. I recognized the tone from when he used to edit the waffle out of my telexes. This is the smoking gun. If Saddam were here, he'd say it was the mother of all sticky notes. That concludes episode 24 of the Tar Sands Diplomat. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please leave a review on iTunes or for the book itself on Amazon.ca. And be sure to tune in next week for the next installment of McGregor's Adventures in Brussels.